Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on DubLab. And today, in honor of Earth Day, I'll be doing a special show sharing a live conversation Brian Eno and I had at South by Southwest this year, talking about the role of art for the climate crisis, with me specifically sharing my project From Green to Red and Brian sharing the work of his environmental charity, Earth Percent. Today for Earth Day, Earth Percent just launched a campaign with a number of artists where they'll be giving all royalties of a new track to the planet via the charity. I'm part of this wonderful campaign and you can check out more about it online. But for now, please enjoy this live conversation Brian and I had about the value of art and nature for our humanity and how we need to have both anger and hope when facing this emergency. There is no other time than now. Abby Rappaport. I'm the publisher and co-founder of Stranger's Guide, but today I'm very excited to introduce our speakers. B.D. Wolf is at the forefront of pioneering new formats for music that bridge the physical and the digital. Wired Magazine named her as one of the 22 people changing the world, and her work includes a 3D theater for the palm of your hand, a wearable record jacket cut by Bowie and Hendrix's Taylor out of fabric woven with Wolf's music, and a space broadcast via the Big Bang Horn. Wolf's latest innovation is an environmental protest piece built using 800,000 years of our planet's climate data to visualize rising CO2 levels. Brian Eno is a musician, producer, visual artist, and activist. He first came to international prominence in the early 70s as a founding member of the British band Roxy Music and followed by a series of solo albums and collaborations. His work as a producer includes albums with The Talking Heads, Devo, U2, Laurie Anderson, and Coldplay, and his long list of collaborations include recordings with David Bowie, John Cale, David Byrne, Grace Jones, and most recently, his brother Roger on Mixing Colors. Please join me in welcoming Beatty and Brian. Thank you so much, Abby. That was lovely. So um, I think we were going to introduce ourselves, but I guess Abby's kind of done that for us. So how are you doing right now? Are you, you're in the UK? I'm in London. It's a lovely spring day. I'm sorry I'm not with you in America but I haven't been to America for quite a time now because I gave up flying a little while ago. <laughs> so I haven't had very many transcontinental journeys lately. That's the way to do it, you know, given what we're here to, to talk about. So when was the last time you took a flight? Well, I gave up about three and a half years ago. And in that time, I have actually taken one flight because I got into a bit of a twist with my train arrangements and I had to get to Athens to do a show there. So, so I took a flight then. Okay. Well, I think we can let you off. Um, <laughs> so you and I originally sort of connected around, you know, COP26, the UN Global Climate Summit, and we were both there 
doing different things. And um, because of that environmental work, because of the sort of shared passion of making sure we're protecting the one home that we have and also using art as a vehicle for that. That was really how we came to have our, our first conversation. Um, how, did, how did you originally get involved in your environmental work? Well, I think one of the sort of long-term inspirations for being an artist at all for me, there were two things really. One was that I, I grew up in the country and I've always drawn on that experience of rural life and the feeling of um, watching how nature works, I suppose. And I remember when I was a young artist, I read something by John Cage, the composer, who said, um, art should imitate nature in its manner of operation. And I always liked that thought that you could sort of think yourself into being a part of nature, which of course we are. It's sort of rethinking oneself into being that and saying that making art is a part of that sense of one's being. And I um, then started becoming very interested in evolution theory, although it is denied still in several parts of the United States. I can assure you there's very good evidence for it. <laughs> um, but I like the idea I think the, the thing that thrilled me most about evolution was the idea of complexity arising out of simplicity. We normally have the theory, the idea in our heads that if something complex exists, it must have been designed by something even more complex. But actually that doesn't seem to be the case in nature. Things started out simpler and they've ramified into more and more complex and beautiful things. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if you could make art like that as well? If you could somehow plant seeds that then open up into things of greater complexity and beauty than you, the creator, so-called, could have imagined. So this became a sort of idea for me. And of course, I was doing this in, on a planet that was suddenly quite noticeably getting worse actually, conditions were becoming worse. And I thought, well, here's an odd paradox. Here I am sort of celebrating nature and taking inspiration from it. And at the same time, I'm watching it disappearing. It seems to me that I, I should be slightly joining in the fight to stop the disappearance as well, rather than just celebrating the existence, which is wonderful. I also, to, to some extent, be part of the resistance part of the resistance to the to the end of the planet. So that that was what sort of started drawing me in. And then if I could just go on a little bit longer in answering that question, I also thought this needn't be as desperate as we're making it out to be. I started to think that there was more good news around than people were used to hearing. And it's very obvious when you do anything related to the media that the focus is nearly always on bad news. You know, most of us exist because our ancestors paid a lot of attention to bad news or to danger or to those possibilities. So humans are attuned to seeing the possibly perilous side of any situation and they will tell each other about it. But the more I started poking around, the more I started thinking, there's a lot of good things going on too. Now, I'm not, I'm not Stephen Pinker. I don't think that we're inevitably on a course to liberation and freedom and wonderfulness. I think that's a sort of Silicon Valley-ish 
conceit and I don't believe it, but I think there is much more good news than we're generally given to believe. So, sorry, rather a long answer to your question. How did you start out in this? That was beautiful. And actually just listening to you, there's this calm that's sort of pervading the the hall that we're sitting in. Um, I feel very similarly. Obviously, I'm, I haven't been on the planet as, as long. But for me, that aha moment, I guess, having grown up feeling deeply connected with the natural world and art, you know, writing songs from when I was six. And exactly as you said, art and nature very much go hand in hand. The best art mimics nature and nature reflects our greatest art or is the inspiration for our greatest art. So for me, the real nature train kicked in when I was a teenager and I went to see, as you know, I'm sure many people here have seen, An Inconvenient Truth You know, when it was first in the cinema. And there are very few experiences like that that really imprinted so deeply especially this is pre-digital and I have a lot of opinions about how when we moved to digital from physical we lost you know a lot of the ceremony a lot of the tangibility a lot of the storytelling around music but actually around almost any medium and with that we we kind of lost the ability for something to go in deep and imprint So obviously an inconvenient truth being in this cinema and watching this film um, as a teenager, I left just so horrified. I, I was so shocked that what I was seeing was truth. I couldn't believe it was a portrait of what really existed. And I went home and I wrote this song from green to red thinking, well, I'll never have to record this because everyone will see the documentary and we'll be on a completely different path and the song will be irrelevant in five to ten years. And obviously that didn't happen. And we'll talk a bit more about that project later because that's one of the main projects um, I'm going to be sharing today, what that ended up becoming. But I think also within all of that, my work, I felt, had always really been about reminding people of the value of art for humanity. You know, Oliver Sacks, the great neurologist, documented the power of music and art across all these different neurological fields from autism to dementia, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, and showed it as this this medicine, this tonic, this orange juice for the ear, this way in when nothing else could penetrate. And I think we almost know as little about music in the brain as we know about the oceans, you know, the floor of the oceans. I mean, we we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the floor of the oceans. And I feel like art is so deeply connected with our humanity and bringing out the best in humanity. But so is nature. And, And actually, Oliver Sacks said there are two things that we fundamentally cannot live without. Well, we can live without them, but we won't thrive, you know, by any means. And those are art and nature. So really, I feel that everything I do, everything I want to do while I'm here on on this planet is about somehow reminding people of that inherent value of these two things that we sort of forget about because technology did such a wonderful job of fast-tracking everything it means to be a human being on the planet. It shortchanged us in many ways. And with that fast-tracking process, it didn't really reflect the true costs in that process. So suddenly we had all this access with no value. We had all this noise, you know, with no curation. 
And I think art and nature got kind of fast-tracked in the process. Well, of course, what this whole festival is about and what you're talking about as well is, is the value of art. Now, to me, this is a very interesting subject because there are very few interesting books about it. Uh, there's very little discussion of it. We're all at this festival and we all spend a great deal of our lives, even the people who aren't at this festival, just ordinary people, spend a great deal of their lives enjoying art or consuming art in some way or another. And, you know, that can be in the form of records or it can be in the form of books or films or cake decoration or makeup or all the sorts of things that we do that are sort of stylistic expressions of some kind. And the question that has interested me for most of my life, actually, has been this simple question of why do we want art? What does it do for us? Now, of course, if you say that to most people, they say, well, it's nice, isn't it? But then the question is, well, why is it nice? Why are we finding it enjoyable? What is it that we like about it? And this has really been the single intellectual thread that's run through my life of trying to think what art is doing for us. And my very simple answer to that question, I should say simplified answer to that question, because it has a quite long answer, I think, really, is that what we do when we make art is that we imagine other worlds. Now, sometimes those other worlds are very clearly other worlds, like when Orwell wrote uh, 1984, he was imagining another world and he was imagining a, a dystopian world there. That's one of the things that art does. It says, what do you think about this possible future? Would you, how would you feel about that? And then there are other worlds that are wonderful. You know, um, somebody writes a book about a utopia and says, what do you feel about that? And in a sense, what we're doing when we engage in art, even if it's not such a grand project as 1984 or a big book like that, even if it's just a little picture on your wall, in a way that picture is asking you a question of how would you feel about a world like this? So if you talk to scientists about feelings until quite recently, they've sort of said, well, feelings, we don't really deal with that because it's they're hard to quantify and you can't measure them and I don't know if what I call a feeling is the same as what you call a feeling and so on. But lately there's been a, a change in that and people are starting to realise that feeling is really the beginning of thinking. Feeling is what we do before we turn things into language, before we turn them into tangible, arguable thoughts. And so I think art is very much at the beginning of that. Art is, is a way of proposing situations to us, proposing things and saying, how do you feel about them? Why do you think you feel like that? What does it make you want to do? How does it make you want to change your own life? You know, if you read 1984, and I assume people still do, um, then you might start to think about surveillance and about the kind of trade you make when you allow yourself to be deeply surveilled, as you are when you are on social media, for example. Though it seems that not many people have made that connection <laughs> yet between 1984 and where we are now. Um, however, so my feeling about art is that it's, it's the practice of the most human quality of all, which is imagination. That is the thing that separates humans from any other creature that we know, at least to the extent that we do it, is we can 
propose in our heads and even in, in our communities, we can propose other worlds that could exist and we could find out how we feel about them. Now, everything that sort of makes humans a successful species comes from that, the ability to imagine what it would be like if we could put a bridge across that river. How do we do that? Well, we could think out in our head, we could do it like this, and then this would happen, or we could do it like that, and that would happen. As far as we know, we're not the only creature that has this ability to anticipate, but we have it in such a large quantity. It's such a big facility for us. And of course, we're born with the ability to imagine, just like we're born with the ability to talk. However, we need to practice both of them. Children don't just start talking, they, they start imitating. They hear what their parents and their brothers and sisters are doing and they learn to talk. But it takes a lot of practice. And I think imagination takes a lot of practice as well. A certain amount we can do quite easily because we watch other people do it. And when we play games as children, we're learning to imagine. But then if you want to carry on the ability to imagine into the rest of your life, when you're not children any longer, you need to keep practicing. And I think art is how we practice, is one of the ways in which we practice. When there's a lovely William Blake quote to that point that also connects art with nature, which is, um, nature is imagination itself. You know, so often mm -hmm. we can look to nature and, and if we don't know how to imagine, that is a, a gateway onto that. Um, yes. But I, I feel with art as well, I completely agree with everything you say, but there's also something that is inexplicable. There's something truly magical and divine. You know, I think the best art, it reflects our humanity, but it also reflects something of our divinity. And it points to something that is inexpressible. You know, you can't articulate it with words or with anything, with any other um, form. And, you know, definitely during this research project I did, this music dementia research project, which I started a number of years ago, you know, watching people who were catatonic, getting up and dancing, people who were nonverbal, singing along to a song, they didn't even know this wasn't even a familiar song. You are so struck by how deep music and art goes and and to a point where we really still don't understand it and so I think that there is that sense of uh, almost well religious you know perhaps not but spiritual definitely and I, I think it opens up as you said that sense of imagining other worlds art does that you know just so naturally um so you know that, sorry go ahead I, I was going to say sort of in tune with the thing that you just quoted. There's a quote, I think, from Thomas Mann, where he said, art is to the community what dreams are to the individual. So he was saying that art is a place where we can collectively imagine. It's a place where we can socialize the act of imagination, if you like. And that, that seems to me very, very true, that a few years ago I read a report of a group of Danish academics who was studying health in old age, now, in Denmark, because you have a socialized healthcare system, you have good medical records for people going back a very, very long time. So they decided to look at the medical records of a very large number of people. I think it was 30,000 people. And to see what the relationships were between 
lifestyle choices, you know, what you ate, whether you smoked, drank, whether you exercised, all those kinds of things, the relationships between those things and good health in old age. So they weren't only interested in people living a long time. They were interested in how they stayed healthy if they lived a long time. And so they were looking for the factors that seemed to relate to that. And the, the top three factors were singing, dancing, and camping. Wow, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think that's so interesting, that, because the fact is cigarettes didn't figure in the top three. Alcohol didn't. Diet didn't. None of those things we normally think of as health-related. What really seemed to figure was the ability to engage in social activities that, in fact, required you in some way to somewhat expose yourself. Because that's, that's the other thing about those three things. And the thing about singing, for example, is you let your guard down. You are sort of undefended. You have to do this embarrassing thing of making a noise in front of other people. <laughs> and they can, you know, they might laugh. Um, I have a acapella singing group that meets in this studio where I'm sitting there every Tuesday evening. In fact, we're not tonight because I've got something else on, but tomorrow we're meeting. And this is the most beautiful thing I do in the week. I, I love it more than anything else. And it's not professionals. There are a couple of musicians in it, but there's lawyers and insurance actuaries and social workers and all sorts of people involved in it. And the beauty of it is that the bond of friendship that is formed between people when they do something like that together, something that somewhat exposes them and where they show their vulnerability, that seems to me one of the healthiest things you can do. It really, really opens you up and fills you up as well. So I recommend to anyone in the audience, please start an a cappella singing group. We can have a little practice run in a few minutes. <laughs> Tell me about your project. Yeah, well, so we've obviously been talking about art and its value. And I think something we also talked about before, which is key with a project like From Green to Red, is how art has this wonderful way of making bridges, of creating bridges between other fields or other disciplines where maybe typically they're siloed. You know, they don't really talk to one another. And through the work that I do, I've ended up working with, you know, neurologists and astrophysicists and all these different types of people, wonderful, wonderful people that have incredible expert knowledge, but not always the easiest way of communicating that. And I think art is such a wonderful way of communicating some of the fascinating things in this world that are kind of hidden in plain sight. So... With this project from Green to Red, which we're going to take a look at in, in just a minute, I mentioned I'd seen An Inconvenient Truth and gone away and written this song called From Green to Red, um, thinking I you know, wouldn't need to record it and it would never really be out in the world because it wouldn't need to be out in the world. And obviously the path I imagined happening didn't happen. Um, so then a couple of years ago, I was at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories giving a talk about my work. And at the end of that, one of the chief engineers, chief NASA engineers, comes up and shows me these atmospheric CO2 graphs dating back 800,000 years. 
And I have that same what the F moment that I had in the cinema. How are we here? And it's not just got steadily worse since 15 years ago. This crisis has been exacerbated, you know, really in the last 25 years on this planet compared to any other time. So feeling that sense of how does one take this data, which is cold and unrelatable for so many people, um, naturally, I completely understand why it is, and turn it into something that everyone can feel, everyone can absorb, you know, via the power of art. And so that was really the intention behind this project from Green to Red. And so when we take a look at it, what you'll be seeing is 800,000 years of climate data, atmospheric CO2 levels, woven into an interactive timeline of our planet depicting human impact, which is set to the song from Green to Red that I wrote as a teenager. And this is just the static version of it, but this was after it was premiered at the Nobel Prize Summit where I was um, following Al Gore and Sir David Attenborough. Uh, it was then installed at the London Design Biennale as an interactive piece where you could actually move your hands over the fabric as it was being woven in front of you to pull out the carbon ppm and planetary timeline date so everyone could really interrogate the data and it was then projected onto cops conference center as the largest visual art statement of the conference so if you're happy brian we might just take a look at, at the video please <laughs> are still running went inside it's safe to deny that it's coming the tv's turned up so the winds are just humming to the sound of the heat rising we don't want to hear that the problem is us so we live like we want in our own universe cause man thinks he's god in a devilish way too proud to see what we won't even say We don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know No, we don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know So take my hand, babe, and I'll walk you to school Where you'll learn how to live by a new set of rules Cause we played all our cards And none left for you Forgive us my dear Can't you see It's the truth that we don't wanna know Don't wanna know Don't wanna know Don't wanna know No we don't wanna know Don't wanna know Don't wanna know Don't wanna know
is only defined by mankind But the creatures don't know for what cause they have died So we wipe off our hands on the fur and the hide We sit at the top with our great peace of mind We don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know No, we don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know So remember denial is a haunt of the head Let your eyes and your heart guide your reason instead When the hungry are starved, the full are still fed We sit at the crossroads, the green turns to red But we don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know No, we don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know, don't wanna know This is a good instance of an aphorism I've come up with recently, which is science discovers and art digests. I think the, the beauty of science is that it tells us what's happening in the world. The beauty of art is that it gives us a chance to see how we feel about it and to so, sort of decide whether we ought to do something about it. So maybe, maybe this would be a good time to get onto the good news <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I think I think you need both simultaneously. You know, I think you need the awareness. I think it's one of the hardest things to do is to activate awareness for all of us. You know, we all have blind spots. We all have things that we just don't necessarily see. But once you become aware of something, it's very hard to backtrack. So we do need that sense of being shaken awake, I feel, but we also need the signs of hope and there are so many and the wonderful inspiring stories which I know you're going to share a few and I'll share a few but just quickly before we get onto that obviously earth percent you know that's something that is still fairly new but it has such a wonderful um, intention and obviously you can tell us more about that but from my understanding you're creating a framework a way that artists can now give royalties to the planet. That's right. So it occurred to myself and a few friends quite recently that there's an, a huge amount of goodwill and a huge number of people wanting to help in some way, wanting to do something about this kind of terrible slide we're going down at the moment. And there's also a lot of confusion about what to do. What's the best thing to do? If you've got, you know, $100 to put into the cause, what's the best place to put it? And all of us are familiar with 
stories of ambitious projects going wrong and not working out. So we thought to set up a, an organization that would, first of all, make it very easy for people in the music business to make a contribution. And that's by including the earth, really, as a stakeholder. You know, we're, we're all used to the idea, if we're writing songs, that we credit co-writers and a certain amount goes towards the producers and the managers and all the people involved in bringing music to life. They are quite used to dividing up their incomes between the various parties and stakeholders involved. So we thought, well, let's just make the earth another stakeholder. Let's acknowledge that without it, we, none of us would be doing anything, <laughs> would even exist. So let's stop treating it like a sort of inert resource that we can just take things from and not care about. We've got to start looking after it. So Earth Percent is really a way of saying to people, look, next time you go on tour, why not assign 1% of the income to environmental causes? Now, the second thing that Earth Percent does, apart from trying to set up collection mechanisms for that and to encourage people to to make those um, commitments. The next thing is to say, and we've done the research to try to find which organizations really, really are working well. There are plenty of them. Some of them are very big and some of them are very small. Some of them are very well known, others are completely unknown. Well, we've, we've done a fair amount of research now to try to find what's the best place to put your money for maximum leverage. You know, you want the money to make as much difference as it can. So you want to often go quite a long way back down the line. To give you one example, I heard the other day about a guy in Imperial College who is working on a way of compressing data more effectively. So, you know, we have MP3s and MP4s and these various ways of forms of compression so that you can send much smaller files around. Well, given the amount of streaming that's going on now, that could make a huge difference, a huge difference. You know, the, the carbon footprint of streaming is actually quite enormous now, and we're all doing it. Not to add blockchain, but... <laughs> and blockchain, too, even worse. You know, so we're thinking about, why don't we support people like that as well? Because if that person can... By the way, this is completely... A, I shouldn't say I'm speaking on behalf of the other people in Earth Percent here. This is a, a new idea that I've been working on personally. But a contribution to, to research of that kind in the long term makes a very, very big difference. You know, it's of the nature of if you could put £10,000 to, towards that person here, that might translate into a saving in the long term of hundreds of millions of pounds, literally, in terms of the carbon footprint. So that's the second thing that Earth Percent is doing. It's trying to find where that money should go. And the third thing we're doing, and it's also not trivial at all, it's not third because it's unimportant, but we're trying to help the music business itself become greener. Quite a lot of musicians are also involved in this. Um, Coldplay are doing this. Um, U2 are thinking about it. The 1975 are doing it. There are a lot of people who are thinking, how can we tour and do the things that we want to do as musicians and yet do them much, much um, more sustainably. So we also want to be a sort of gathering house for that kind of information so that 
when people want to go out plan a tour and they want to go out and know what's the best thing to do, they can come to Earth Percent and say, what are the ideas? What are the best ideas that are going? Who's doing what? And we'll be able to tell them. So that's, that's what we're doing. And I'm hoping that some members of the audience at least will think, that's a good idea. The next time I do a tour or make an album, I'd like to send a little of that to Earth Percent. And we have a new project on now. It's, it's just about ready to go, I think. And this is to actually be able to make the Earth a co-composer in a song. So, you know, if you write a song with, with your brother, say, you would divide it, say, perhaps 50-50. But now you might say, actually, let's, let's divide it 45-45 and give the remaining 10% to our co-composer, the Earth. And that 10% will then be collected by the collection agencies throughout the world and paid into the, the Earth's bank account, um, which will then be redirected towards organizations that look after the health of the planet. So that's what Earth Percent does. And um, we're very keen to have the support of everybody in this room. <laughs> Wonderful. And I know we were going to share some more hopeful stories, which I think is very necessary during these times. And talking about other initiatives, as you've said, there are so many wonderful initiatives that are, again, kind of hidden in plain sight that exist and are doing maybe more grassroots local stuff. But that's really, I feel, how we're going to have to approach this. It's all going to be hyper micro and local there isn't going to be a one size fits all or one technology that we invent all the best technology already exists in mother earth you know we just also have to let her and many species give them the chance to regenerate because nature's regenerative powers are incredible so I've been working on a couple of these initiatives in in LA but they extend to California which I see as really positive signs um, of this new life growing. And they both actually connect with the guitar. So I took the guitar as a vehicle for storytelling, given what we've said about art and storytelling, and dissecting it, you know, looking at the wood that makes up the guitar, the abalone shell that would be used for the inlay. I've been exploring these two local initiatives. One is rethinking the urban landscape, planting the right trees in the right location, because it's not just about planting trees. They have to really, you have to figure out what's the right species for the right point. And at the end of life cycle, these trees are being planted in urban areas, typically, you know, lower income areas that lack canopy coverage, where obviously then quality of life is dramatically improved. And at the end of life cycle of these trees, these urban trees, typically they'd probably end up as tinder and all the carbon would be released back into the atmosphere. Um, but now they're becoming guitars or buildings or, you know, whatever else. And so the guitar I play on is entirely reclaimed urban wood. And I think that's a wonderful thing to, to realize there's also this circular economy that you didn't necessarily know existed. And the other one is a rewilding the Californian aquaculture. So the kelp forests and the abalone which in California, both species used to be abundant and now have gone down to 5-10% of what they were in the last 
10, 15 years. So working with Noah, outplanting these farm-grown abalone and also restoring kelp forests, realizing that you know the kelp forest is it's one of the ocean's most effective carbon capture systems, and then the abalone acts as a sort of architect for the kelp forest. So obviously we need healthy oceans, and this initiative is is doing a lot of good work in that area. And that links back to the guitar because obviously the abalone shell typically would be used as sort of ornamental inlay. So I, I feel like those are two stories that I've been involved with. Um, and they're, they're kind of the first of their kind. You know, you would have thought maybe something like that tree initiative would have existed before, but actually it's all kind of brand new. And how about you? Have you come across anything? Well... There's so many. There's some, actually some really good books at the moment about this. There's one that was issued late last year by the BBC called 39 Ways to Save the Planet. And it's just 39 different initiatives, some of them very local, some of them pretty much global. And, for instance, one of them is improving photosynthesis. Obviously, if we can grow plants faster or better or bigger, that greatly reduces the use of fertilisers etc etc the use of land area and so on so there are at least three different projects now on which are all different ways of improving photosynthesis the discovery that um, greenhouses with a red filter on them so that the light that comes in is redder greatly improves photosynthesis by as much as 40 percent so there's there's quite a few technical things like that in fact there are hundreds and hundreds of technical inventions some of them quite small but when you add them all together they make a very big difference but then there are also in a way more exciting to me there are differences in how people feel about their relationships with the planet and with each other i don't know if you've been aware of the citizens assembly movement that's happening in various parts of the world where instead of appealing to central government for every decision um, citizens get together and they're often chosen randomly. So they're people who volunteer to be part of this random pool. And they are then asked difficult questions, quite complex moral and legal questions. And they almost infallibly come up with better results, better answers than the professional politicians do. For instance, in Ireland, which is a country that for the whole of time was extremely anti-abortion in the most traditional way, they put together a citizens' assembly um, of 100 people and then they had five weekends with those people where they were allowed to talk and discuss and they were allowed to call on expert advice. They were given the resources to do that. And then those people made a decision about abortion and, in fact, they chose in favour of it. But the interesting thing is before they had that assembly, they chose not for abortion. They were against it. Um, the majority of them. So there was something mind-changing in the group of people coming together to talk about this. And, of course, the other revolutionary thing is that the politicians paid attention to them. Another example is a thing called Global Assembly, which is an attempt to... In fact, it's not just an attempt. It worked at COP26 last year. This was 100 citizens from all over the world, chosen randomly. Very interesting. It was such an extraordinary group of people who came together to discuss conservation, the conservation of the planet. And again, the proposals they came up with were more radical 
than any group of politicians would have come up with. And it's partly because people in the company of each other, in an atmosphere of respect for each other, tend to go a long way together. They, they tend to not take the polarised position of saying, no, you're wrong or I'm wrong. There's no compromise position. They tend to compromise and they tend to actually compromise in rather a good direction. So those are two things that I, I find exciting. Another thing I find exciting is um, what's happening in economics at the moment. Economics is very important because it, it's the way that governments justify the distribution of wealth. You know, governments control, in a way, the distribution of wealth, or they don't control it. <laughs> in the case of America, they don't control it at all. They let it all trickle up to the top. Um, but if you, if you sort of don't take that extreme libertarian belief that that's fine for everything to collect into a few hands, if you think that it, things would probably be better if it were distributed a little bit better, then you need a theory about how to do that. And that's sort of what economics is about. How does wealth get distributed? And the best news in the last few years has been that more and more women have been entering economics at a very high level. So you have people like Mariana Mazzucato, Kate Rayworth, Kate Rickett, Carlotta Perez. These are all people who come to economics with an entirely different picture of how the wealth of the planet is maintained and in whose, for whose benefit. So they're people who are talking about, you know, what the original meaning of the word economics was. It was household. It comes from the idea of looking after a household and running the affairs of a household. Well, we all know that women are quite a lot better at doing that than men. And that sensibility of thinking, my job is to care for the thing, for the whole system, is what infuses the economics of all of those women I mentioned. And there are lots of others as well. It's not just them. So I think there's a, a much bigger idea in economics. It's not just about creation of wealth, which it was in Milton Friedman's day, for example, 50 years ago, or in fact, in the whole sort of history of economics since Reagan and Thatcher, which is about the creation of individual wealth. So what these new econom economists are saying is, no, that is not the primary objective. The primary objective is, is a healthy ecosystem where everybody is doing well. You know, it doesn't, some might be doing better than others. Okay, no problem with that. But not a system where a few are doing incredibly well and the majority are not doing well at all. So I see that as a very hopeful future as well, that we're starting to think differently. And we're thinking differently about all sorts of relationships, like think of all those movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, feminism, all of those movements that are saying, I want to rethink the relationship I have with other people. I don't want to be in a world where some people are marginalised and some people get all the opportunities and other people don't get very many at all. Um, so that that's a kind of rethink. And another rethink is... Um, the relationship people have with themselves. I don't want to think of myself as a production unit, as somebody whose identity is defined by their job. You know, I go into the office every day and the reward is that I get $65,000 a year and I can buy a new car every four years. Um, I think people are starting to feel that that's a bit <laughs> a limiting form of self-definition. 
So they're starting to um, want to open up a bit more than that. Well, I think there's a lot in that. And I think definitely with your comments on rethinking what our economic value and focus is going forward, it can't be a growth one any longer. Um, and you know, also really factoring in those costs that have been left out. It's like borrowing money you don't have. You know, there's the, <laughs> there is a planet with finite resources. It will not go on indefinitely if we keep borrowing from it. And I think people are having to wake up to that because it's hitting us in the face. I mean, everything is happening faster than any of the scientists or climate specialists predicted. It's happening now. Now is the time to change a uh, systemic level of just wrong priorities, really. Yeah. And I, I think what you said also about you know, when people step out of the boxes, you're not in this box or that box, whether it's defined by your job or what you think is important or your identity. You know, we're all, we're all human beings. We're all sentient beings, along with every other sentient creature on the planet. And we're all deeply interconnected. And I just constantly come back to that feeling of, you know, when you look at nature, you look at a healthy ecosystem Every species is thriving. You know, those species can only do well if the whole does well. And we're exactly the same. Human beings are exactly the same. And we're not apart from that. We're deeply connected with that and with one another. Um, and so that mentality of, you know, well, it's not on my doorstep, so I won't deal with it. It is on your doorstep, even if it isn't literally. That's uh, very beautifully put, I think. Um, I completely agree with you that you can't um, you can't take apart complex ecosystems and think that you can get rid of one bit or not care about one bit and the rest will do fine. It might work for a little while. It has worked for a little while, but then there are costs to pay. You know, the complexity of the whole system constantly cross checks and rebalances itself unless you really put it out of joint. And we have really put it out of joint. So, um, you know, it's not sentimentality to say that there are really only two worthwhile growth industries, actually. One is creativity and the other is love. Both of those, we could do with growing those. We don't have to really grow any more car factories. We've got, we've got plenty enough. We don't, we don't need to put our growth into things like that. We need to be growing the things that count for us. Here, here. So we're coming to the last couple of minutes. So maybe it's, it's just nice to share that going forward, there will be an Earth Day, Earth Percent campaign, which I'm a part of. Are you feeling like you might have forgot that? <laughs> I've, I've got a terrible memory. So shall I talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, and I'll, I'll just say very quickly that um, what was quite nice is the live performance of Oh My Heart from the Nobel Prize Summit will be the track I'm releasing with you guys for that campaign. Oh, how lovely. Thank you. So I'll just tell you about this campaign. We invited a number of artists and musicians to submit a piece of music, which could be a new piece or an old piece redone or a live version of an old piece or whatever, anything, um, to Bandcamp, who very generously agreed to host this. And for two weeks, that, will, that track will be on sale. 
and all the proceeds from it go to Earth Percent. So it's looking really good. There's some very good people signed up and we're hoping to raise quite a lot of money from that. So thank you so much for mentioning that. It looks like we'll be also doing a festival in LA with Music Center, um, where we'll be joining forces. That will be later in the year, so October, November time, but like an eco, ecological festival. So if you, you know, wish to come to that or, or follow information about that, please do. But otherwise, Brian, I think we're... In I'll a... work here. <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> thank you so much, Peter. It's really been nice talking to you. And thank you, everyone in the audience, for sitting and listening. And I hope, um, I hope we can help each other. I completely agree. Thank you for, for being here. And thank you for not flying. I, too... I'm only flying if I absolutely have to. And, you know, I think maybe that's quite a nice thing just to end on. It's like we can all make a difference. Those small decisions that we think of as being irrelevant, um, whether to take, you know, five flights or one flight in a year, make a huge amount of difference. Eating, you know, vegan, eating locally, knowing what you're supporting and where your money is going all these things, I think there are a lot of things that we can all do and often it can feel overwhelming, but we have much more power than we realize. We have so much more power. This is the biggest movement in human history. There's never been any movement, any thought that has consumed humans as much as this one does. There are billions of us working on this and we don't kind of know about each other, really. The media are studiously looking in the wrong direction, expecting change to come from the normal places, like from Washington and London and so on. And there's a lot of change happening, but it isn't coming from there. It's coming from people. It's coming up through the ground, actually. So I, th I think we have to start acknowledging that we are where the power is, actually. And it's also not black and white. It's not doom or utopia. It's no. everything that we can do will change, will make huge changes to how much of an earth we have that's thriving and habitable. So, you know, the difference between 1.5 and 1.6 is huge. It's gigantic. So I think we, it's really important to remember that because otherwise it can just feel like it's hopeless. Yeah, it's, it's not hopeless. The, there's an English politician called Tony Benn. He said, you need hope and anger. He said, on their own, neither of them are very useful. But you need to have hope, but you need to have the sort of ferocity to carry through with it. It's going to be a struggle, you know, and there's going to be resistance, but we're going to have to do it. Well, ending on hope and anger. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you.